our worship team has just done such a great job lately. You know, yeah, amen, amen. We have been blessed with some awesome worship leaders. Christine Sullivan and Brittany McDade have just been fantastic during my entire time here. I've been so grateful for them. And for everybody who asked, Ain't No Grave is the song Ann Turner sang last week. So I've gotten that question a lot. Ann Turner sang this song that was terrific. You should have heard it. I did. I was here during practice. It was awesome. Y'all all, our team has just done a fantastic job lately and I'm grateful for them. And before we jump into our text, I have to say this because I will forget if I don't say it now. We don't have to put up chairs today. All right. All right. So <laughs> really, that's what we celebrate. I mean, I say life-giving things about the Lord. I talk about, you know, how God is transforming our lives. You're quiet. We don't have to put up chairs. Thank the Jesus. We get charismatic when we don't have to put up chairs. I'm telling you what. Y'all better watch out. This isn't a Methodist church anymore. We're talking too much. All right, we're going to Mark chapter five. Here we go. About to end the fun right here, I'm just saying. Wait a second. Is that right? That's not right. I gave you the wrong scripture. This is what we call stalling. All right. See, this is why you should bring your actual Bible up to preach with you and not your contraption iPad, all right, here we go. What is going on here? This is super professional. All right, Mark 11, not five. Verse 12 though, that part was right. That's my fault. Communicate, like, why am I in charge of communication? Does Sheila come back? Where's Sheila? Anybody want a job? I can't pay you, but Mark chapter 12. I'm just going to read it. It might be on the screen. If not, it's not their fault. It's my fault. Mark chapter 11, verse 12. Oh my gosh, you're amazing. Thank you so much, Merrick family. We're off the rails. The next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. All right, he was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season of figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of money changers and the benches of those selling doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith, Jesus answered. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt it in their hearts, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe you have received it and it will be yours. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. And together we say... Thanks be to God. We are in the third week of a four-week series called Rhythm. 
where we're thinking about the rhythms of our life. We said in the first week, balance is not a real thing. When people say, I need balance in my life, they are on a search that will never find any type of fulfillment. Um, Because as we have all learned, anytime you try to find balance and you think you've achieved it, the next day something happens that throws it all out of whack. But there can be rhythm to life. Our lives can be emphasized on certain areas like our work, our faith, our family more in certain times than in others so that we can make sure we're living holy and holistic lives. And so last week we talked about our families and how can we be families that are confessional and Michael preached to us about what that looks like. Our first week we talked about how faith is not the same as belief, but it's more like trust. And this week I thought about beginning my sermon with a little uh, Rihanna You know, her classic 2006, work, 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 work. That wasn't in my sermon title, but I didn't think it'd be, you know, wouldn't translate in print as well. I was like, well, maybe the Fifth Harmony one from also 2016, the classic hit. Everybody go to work, 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 work. And then I realized Bailey's gonna get mad at me if I keep singing during my sermons. Bailey Savage tells me, never sing to your sermons, but I do it anyway. Obviously, we are talking about work this morning. And what that means for our rhythms in life. We have a lot of professionals in here, a lot of people who put a lot into their jobs and a lot who say, you know, I need some some work-life balance, maybe some work-life rhythms. And so let's consider that this morning as we preach from the subject, your waking hours. Will you pray with me? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. We thank you for your word. May it always be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Have I ever told you how I got into ministry? I can't remember. I feel like I might have, but just in case I haven't. If I did, it was a long time ago. See, when people go into ministry, oftentimes they have these really cool stories about how they were hiking up a mountain and they saw a rainbow and then an eagle flew over it. And then you just knew from the Lord that was your sign that you're supposed to go into ministry or how like the thunder crashed next to you and you're so scared. You're like, I got to dedicate my life to the Lord. I don't have one of those cool stories. It's pretty boring if you ask, you know, if you, if you put it compared to these dramatic encounters. It's much like my salvation story, my church membership story. If, if it was a playbook, it was, you know, just the way it was drawn up. There was no Hail Mary last ditch effort that came from behind victory. It was the run right at the middle. The way that people kind of imagine what it would be when they put together this whole Christian discipleship pathway. I was baptized in Dothan, Alabama at Covenant United Methodist Church by Mike Watson, who later became a pastor here. He was our senior pastor for eight years at Dolphin Way before he became a bishop. And then later on in the sixth grade, I was confirmed at First United Methodist Church in Dothan by Lawson Bryan, who used to serve at Ashland Place United Methodist Church. Later, he served at First Montgomery, where my sister was his associate before he too became a bishop. That is the most bishop will ever be associated with my name. Let's be honest. I'd never want that job, Um, which is why um, when I say my my story is kind of the way it's supposed to be drawn up, it's not surprising. My calling story is pretty similar. I don't have some moment I can point to that's like, this is the exact time that God called me into ministry. I don't have one of these really revelatory experiences to tell you, man, God changed my life from like this path to that path. And I was this and now I'm that and I'm going to go into ministry. It's literally just been something I've always known I wanted to do. Like 
I cannot remember a time I thought about doing anything else. I do remember the first time I told somebody. I was in the ninth grade. I was um, 13 or 14. I was going into ninth grade as the summer before, and I told somebody, I said, what do you want to do when you grow up? I said, I want to be a preacher. And from then on out, that's why I, I mean, I always told people, what do you want to do when you grow up? I want to be a preacher. It actually wasn't even until college that somebody asked me, hey, if you weren't going to be a pastor, what would you do that I'd ever even considered that there were other career opportunities? And after thinking about it, I was like, you know what? If I were going to be a preacher, I, I could be a cruise ship entertainer. I'd be really good at that. I mean, maybe a magician, a comedian, the cruise ship director. I feel like I did tell you that before. That's a, you know, preachers, we forget what we say. We just talk a lot. We, you know. But I can honestly say, despite not knowing where this direction came from, there's not a shadow of a doubt in my mind that there's anything on this planet I would rather do than be your pastor. I love this church. I love being here. I love you all. And since the ninth, ninth grade, I told everybody my plan was this. I was going to go to Huntington College and get a major in religion. I was going to go to Emory for seminary because that's where Mike and Lawson went. And that's what I knew. I was going to get ordained to be appointed somewhere near the coast. I did all that. So now I, I can just, I'm good. So please, if anybody ever asks, I'm going to be the next Kathy Jorgensen. Just stay here my whole life. All right. I just, I tell you, I, I tell you these things, not just to tell you my, my, you know, my story because I, I want you to know more about me, but because I think it's important when we consider what we do with our waking hours, why we do those things. As we continue the sermon, I want you to have that in the back of your mind. Not only what is it that you do, um, but why do you do it? I feel like I was called to this and also feel like I have the skills to do this relatively adequately. And I feel like that I get, actually, I don't feel, I know I get a great deal of joy from being your pastor from being able to preach and being able to visit you in the hospital, to do weddings and funerals. And not that I get joy from funerals, but I get a joy from being able to be there with you during those times. To seeing my daughter being raised with all of your children and being accepted is something I can't describe. I love what I do with my waking hours. It can be hard at times, it can be stressful. There'll be times where I question my own abilities when things happen or I'm like, am I cut out for this? But it doesn't mean that I still don't love being a pastor here. And, and our waking hours, um, when we think of the rhythms of life, the things in which we're trying to balance but can't, and so trying to find a rhythm in, the majority of our waking hours are spent at work, are they not? If you're a, chill, if you're a child, if your main profession is to raise children and to care for your family, that's, that too is work. I consider you know, the things that we do with the majority of our waking hours, that's the broad scope I'm using to describe the term work. Whatever it is you do with the majority of your waking hours. The thing I do with mine is be a pastor, is try to you know, do the things I just described. And as we turn back into our text this morning, I want you to just be thinking about what is it that I spend the majority of my waking hours doing and why do I do those things, all right? So our selection this morning from Mark might seem a little odd as we discuss the concept of work. This is not a, a story particularly about how we're supposed to take joy in all the things we do. Jesus is flipping tables and cursing fig trees. There's lots of individual verses in the Bible that actually talk about work specifically. But I find sometimes if we just select one verse and discount whatever's around it, that that can be a little dangerous. 
It's technically called proof texting. Whenever you have an idea and you find a verse in the Bible to support your idea, um, anybody can do that for just about anything. If I wanted to use the verse, whatever your, heart, whatever your hands find to do, you must do with all your heart. Well, right before that, it says, slaves obey your masters. And would that be fair to just leave that part out because I don't like that part. It's difficult to deal with. If you want to have a ver- find something, if you have an opinion, you know, that we should be violent to everybody, you can find a verse about that. If you want to have an opinion that we should be nonviolent to everybody, there's a verse about that too. And so I think it's more important that we find the threads throughout scripture and then stories that help communicate these truths so that we know we're being fair and faithful with the Bible and not using it in harmful or abusive ways. And so we come to this story this morning where Jesus is, is cursing fig trees and flipping tables. And we think, or I think, it has a lot to say to us about what are we doing with our waking hours? This story is in all four gospels. It's in the synoptic gospels towards the end. The synoptic gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And it's towards the, the end of the story, right before the passion of Christ. It's actually the lead up to Holy Week. The triumphal entry with Jesus on the donkey on Palm Sunday has just taken place. And Jesus walks into the temple once he makes it into Jerusalem. That's where this story is in three of the gospels. John puts it in the second chapter. He puts it very early on because it's important for him to show Jesus's priorities early. But we use Mark, one, because I have an affinity for Mark. I just love the way in which Mark tells and organizes stories. But also... um, because his is a very creative way of organizing how things take place. So it starts after the triumphal entry, Jesus actually goes to Jerusalem, he sees the money changers and he's furious and then he leaves. They go back to Bethany, which overlooks Jerusalem. Bethany is a place of rest. It's a house where Jesus and his disciples often go to share meals. Bethany is a a scene in a lot of gospel stories. He goes back to Bethany and then he, the next morning, he sees a fig tree and he's hungry. So he decides, I'm going to go get some figs. And he walks over to this fig tree, but there's no figs on it because it's not the season of figs. It would be like if I went up to a satsuma tree in March and expected there to be some satsumas. It's not the tree's fault there's no satsumas in March. It's my fault for thinking there should be. Well, that's what Jesus does with this fig tree. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Jesus is mad at the fig tree for trying to be something or for not being something he thinks it should be. He goes over this fig tree, he's mad, there's no figs on it, so he curses the fig tree. And then he and his disciples, they go back to the temple. They go back to Jerusalem. And that's when he walks in through the temple gates and right outside the sanctuary, in the kind of common place where all the people are allowed to be, there are people selling at a higher price things, animals that can be used for sacrifice. And they're exploiting and taking advantage of vulnerable people, people who don't have enough money to really afford these things, but they know in order to be richly pure, they have to pay this enormous amount of money. It reminds me of some of our prosperity gospel practices in modern Christianity, where people can't actually afford some of the things in which preachers are asking them to pay for, but they do it anyway because the preacher told them to do it if they want to be made righteous. And that's kind of what is happening with these sellers of the doves and the goats and the lambs. And so Jesus sees these practices and he is so furious. This is one of the few times we see Jesus get angry and he flips the tables over. 
and he says, this is supposed to be a house of worship. It's supposed to be a house of the Lord and you have turned this place into a den for robbers. I mean, he is livid. He turns these tables over, he's furious, they're mad and then they storm out and they go back to Bethany. They go back to Bethany to the place of rest. And while they're there, all of a sudden, Peter sees, he looks over and he says, Lord, that fig tree that you cursed, it has withered up and died. And then Jesus tells them, whatever you ask for in the name of the Lord, it can be given to you. You see, Mark organizes these stories, and this is a fancy word for a literary feature called a chiasm. It's a sandwich story. It's a story between a story. It's like a phrase. A chiasm is the same thing as a phrase that goes like this. Quitters never win and winners never quit. It's when you say things in a creative way to really drive home a point. So you've got this story about the temple that's bookended by this fig tree. And Mark is trying to communicate something really important below the surface. It's not just about the story. You see, Mark was written around 72 or 74 CE or AD, as some people would say. And this story of Jesus is taking place around 30 or 33, so almost 50 years earlier. A lot can happen in 50 years. I'm not even 50 years old yet, and I feel like lots of good things have happened in my life, so a lot of things can happen in 50 years. 50 years is young, right? Kevin Carter, 50 is young, all right? And so um, I saw him, it's giving me amens over there. All right, and so um, a lot can happen, and something very important did happen. In 70, just a few years before Mark wrote this gospel, before he put pen to paper, the temple was destroyed by the Roman government. The place where this story is taking place, there was a revolt by the Maccabeans, led by the Maccabeans. That's where the book, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd Maccabees comes from in the Apocrypha. There's a revolt led by the Maccabeans where the Jewish people were trying to take back Jerusalem. And it was squelched. It was put out by the Romans. And while they did so, they destroyed the temple. And the temple, for all the Jewish people and these early Christians who did not know how to identify themselves apart from their Jewish heritage yet, was the central place where worship and social and religious gatherings took place. It was like the most important place. It was like our church. It was like if there was only one church in all of the Mobile that we all came to to worship, and that we all came to to ask for forgiveness, and that we all came to to fellowship, and we all came to to be Christians together, that was the temple in Jerusalem. And the Romans, they destroyed it. And so then all the Jewish people and all the earlier Christians, like, what do we do now? And why did this happen? And so Mark tells the story. He explains how it makes sense that the temple was destroyed because look at what Jesus said about the temple. It was created for one purpose, to be a house of worship. And it forgot who it was. It forgot what it was supposed to be. It stopped being what it was created for and it became a den of robbers. It makes sense that it faded away, that it was destroyed because it no longer had a purpose anyway. People didn't actually take the Lord and the Lord's work seriously. It became a place of corruption, not a place of forgiveness and mercy. So as we think about work and the rhythms of our lives, I think this temple can be a personification for two things. I think you can interpret this temple as the church in the 21st century. What does it mean 
that we are similar to the temple. And it can be interpreted as how are we as individuals like this temple? So for the church, I mean, if Jesus were to come back and look at Christianity in America, would he be thrilled or would he be turning over tables? Would he say, you've got it right, or would he be flipping over tables? If you were to come to Dauphin Way and look at our practices, would God be proud of the church that we are? I think more often than not, yes, I'm very proud of this church. But we are not perfect. There have probably been times where we have done something that you didn't like or that didn't go the way you thought it was supposed to or that any of us thought it would need to be. We are all in the path of sanctification and that includes us as a whole church. We can all be more in line with the kingdom. But if Jesus were to show up and look at Christianity as a whole in the 21st century, would he say, yes, that's what it's supposed to be? Or would he say, what are you doing? You were created. You were supposed to be my bride. You were supposed to be my hands and feet. Your work in this world is supposed to be to make the kingdom known. Why are you spending your money on these things? Why are you not doing more to help the vulnerable? Why are you being insular and exclusive? Why are you not feeding the hungry and clothing the naked and caring for the afflicted and comforting the lonely? Would Jesus ask us those questions? Or do we actually do a pretty good job? Do we have it all figured out already? And yet the same is true for us as individuals. The same question can be asked to us. Paul says, in lieu of the temple being destroyed, that our bodies are the new temple, that we are the place in which Christ resides, that within us the spirit of the Lord dwells. In the same way the spirit of the Lord used to dwell in the physical temple in Jerusalem before it was destroyed, before the temple veil was torn and the spirit went out into the world. Now the spirit is within each and every one of us. And so are you being the person God created you to be? Are you able to do the work that God created you to do? Lulu is wondering the same question for all of us. Lulu and August are best friends, by the way. All good, buddy. All good, buddy. This is why your children are always welcome in here. Always. Our family room is available, but I love it. I mean, August helps me learn my sermons and she talks the whole time. So, so but for real, when you think about your waking hours, the way you spend your time, are you being a holy and righteous place for God to reside Would God be proud of the way in which you spend your hours doing whatever it is that you do? Or would God say, I created you to be holy. I created you to be set apart. I called you to make the kingdom known on earth as it is in heaven. And you yourself have become a den of robbers. What we do with our time, how we spend our waking hours is a mirror of how much we actually care about what Christ thinks or what the work of the Lord is supposed to be in this world? I think this is an important question. If Christ dwells within us and we claim to be these followers of Jesus, the Messiah, do we spend our lives working the majority of our waking hours doing something that is honoring to God? If you are a doctor, are you spending your time offering healing because you genuinely want to help people or because you were smart and you thought it would be a good profit? 
If you are in financial planning or a financial professional or if you work in finance of any sort, are you trying to work for the best interest of your clients? Honoring God by the way you treat people? Or are you just concerned about your bottom line? If you spend your waking hours caring for your children and taking care of your family, what are you doing with your hours when they're at school? Or whenever you're with them, are you spending the time being present in the way you're supposed to? I'm not here to accuse anybody of not being these ways. I'm here to ask you to consider it for yourself. Is your work something God is proud of and that you are proud of? Do you spend the majority of your waking hours doing something that brings you joy and life? Or is it something that just gets you through the day? I think it's important to make sure to say, we do have to provide for our families. This is, there is a reality that we live in, that we have to have food on the table and care for the people who depend on us. And yet too, if we gain the whole world and sacrifice our souls, what good is living this life that God has given us? And so in light of this whole idea, like the, the temple wasn't being what it was supposed to be, it spent its time being corrupt. If Christ is now dwelling in us as these new temples, are you spending your time, the majority of your waking hours, doing something that provides value to the kingdom of God? Does the way you care for your family, the way you care for your colleagues, if you are a student, the effort you're putting into school, is that bringing honor and glory to the kingdom? Or are we just dens of robbers? So as we close, as we move to the communion, I will say there are seasons in life. There are times that we are forced to do things that we might not love. There might not be the things we feel called to do. But I pray you'll consider how can you move into a place that will make you feel like you're able to be the person God has created you to be. Because when we think about the rhythm, family, faith, work, rest, most of our time is spent doing this work thing. And if we are miserable, if we are not proud, or if it's not what we feel like we should be doing, the rest of it's gonna be out of whack. It is hard to have a healthy faith when we hate what we do eight hours a day. It is hard to be a faithful parent or sibling or child if you can't be happy with the majority of your waking hours, if you don't feel fulfilled. And so I pray that we'll consider if we want to have these healthy rhythms where we are able to be the people God's created us to be, we ask very seriously, why are we doing what we do? And is it honoring to these temples we are supposed to be? Will you pray with me?